Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, the show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yuta Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America, and we're recording on Sunday, April 25th. Major news event of this past week, of course, obvious to everyone here in America and probably around the world as well, was the conviction of Derek Chauvin in a Minnesota courtroom on multiple charges stemming from his role in the murder of George Floyd in the summer of 2020 an event that catalyzed major American racial justice protests. The conviction is only possible because it was actually caught on camera by an onlooker. Nevertheless, even so, even with the visibility of the crime on camera, the conviction was historic for all sorts of reasons. Police officers in the United States are not almost ever convicted for such crimes against civilians, much less against black people. The conviction itself was watched incredibly closely by everyone around America with a great deal of faded breath. Of course, there still remains to be seen what will happen with his conviction. Of course, he will obviously appeal his conviction, and there's a major political storm around the possibility of that appeal and the whole ways in which the racial justice protests in America over the past summer have influenced the way in which people are watching these trials and participating in these juries. To unpack all of this and to talk about the consequences of this story for us as Americans, us as Jews, I'm really thrilled to be with two returning guests to Identity Crisis. Gina Green is a fellow at the Kogod Research Center at the Shalom Hartman Institute in North America. She's a political strategist, writer, and consultant, and until June 2020 was the chief strategy officer at Ben the Ark Jewish Action, was actually with us last summer following the murder of George Floyd, uh, to talk about it then. And Rivka Presh-Schwartz is also a fellow at the Research Center at Hartman, as well as in her primary day job, the Associate Principal of General Studies at SAR High School in the Bronx in New York. First of all, thank you both for being here today and for engaging on this really important and complicated subject. And I want to start by asking you, I'll start with Eugene, to just speak a little bit personally, if you can, about your reaction to the verdict and what, if anything, you think it means? And I'm putting means in quotes. I think we like to look at these events as though they lend themselves very obviously to major interpretations. So I'll let you answer it however you see comfortable. Thanks, Yehuda, for having me today and asking this question. I feel like there's a decent chance I might get a little emotional in the answering, either right now or over the course of the next several minutes in this conversation because there was a lot of weight and gravity to both the lead up to the conviction and the conviction itself. I happened to be facilitating a teaching on the night of the verdict that was scheduled mm-hmm. to begin at five o'clock Eastern time. And when I found out that the verdict was going to be handed down within moments of that time, I immediately knew that there was no way, regardless of guilty or not guilty, hung jury or mistrial, whatever was going to happen, we were going to be able to have the conversation that we needed to have. And it was a group of multiracial, multiethnic Jews and non-Jews. And we were supposed to talk about intersectionality. And so it was a very interesting moment for me in particular. And I think that when the verdict was actually handed down, the emotion that I had, the sense that I had was of relief and gratefulness, really. Because I think that I thought it would be possible that a conviction would take place. But even if that did happen, would it really feel like any sense of justice? And would it really feel like anything had actually changed? But the truth is, a big thing did change. It was a big deal that he was convicted. 
And you, you mentioned in your opening remarks that part of the reason why is because it was caught on camera, but there were so many other police murders that have also been caught on camera did not result in a conviction. And so the relief and the gratefulness meant that cities weren't going to burn that night. People might actually be a little bit safer than they would have. And I still think about in the immediate aftermath, there was a lot of talk about this wasn't justice, this was accountability and measured nuance in terms of how we take it. And I just think about the fact that we still have a systemic problem and one conviction doesn't change that. I appreciate the differentiation between what I think you're saying, which is it's meaningful and significant and worthy of gratitude, independent of some large, unsustainable claim that suddenly, hey, the racial injustice problem in America is over. But their gratitude is for the moment itself and for what it allowed to not emerge in America as a result. Rivka, how about you? Can you tell us a little bit about your reaction to the verdict? And again, what you think it means? And I also know that you're teaching in a Jewish high school, you're leading a Jewish high school. If you can reflect a little bit on the experience of teaching in an environment like that and watching a reaction there, that would be helpful as well. So it's a little funny to come after Gina and after Gina speaking with a much more personal sense of connection to this and saying that it did mean something significant to her to say that I think I saw it as meaning less. And maybe that's because it doesn't carry the same personal weight for me. But I'd like to describe why I saw it as meaning less. It seemed very clear already during the trial, if I can be a little cynical here, there had been a decision made to cut Derek Chauvin loose. That it was so clear what he had done was so egregious. The chief of police testified against him. Police officers did not do the typical blue wall of silence thing, but testified against him. And again, while some might say you see things are changing, I think other events that have taken place even during the trial have shown us that things are not changing as much as we think they need to. And it looks to me like in this one case, the weight of the evidence, because it was recorded, because there were so many direct witnesses, because it sparked the largest racial justice protests in American history, that it was almost like we can't defend this guy and we're going to cut this guy loose. But maybe it's even we're going to cut this guy loose to mute some of the demands for broader systemic change. And so the conviction meant that this, I'm going to invoke, I hope you'll forgive me for perhaps a frivolity of it, but I'm going to invoke a scene from a Disney movie. I've used this scene, I find it actually illustrative of many things, but in the movie Cinderella, the invitation to the ball comes, all eligible maidens are invited to the ball, and Cinderella runs into her stepmother to say, it says all eligible maidens, I should be able to go to the ball also. And Cinderella's stepmother gives her a sly smile and says, okay, Cinderella, if you can find something to wear, and if you can get all of your work done, then you can go to the ball. Cinderella skips out of the room, and her stepsisters, Drizella and Anastasia, turn to the stepmother and say, mother... What did you just say? And the stepmother smiles and says, if I said if. So this feels like if it's captured on camera and if there are many witnesses and if there are the largest racial justice protests in American history, then you can secure a conviction. And absent that, I'm just not sure how much has changed. But the fact that that's true is a big change. And maybe we wouldn't have gotten a conviction without the uprisings of last summer. But I still feel like that to me feels like movement and progress and still a long way to go. 
And I want to acknowledge that reality that our perspectives are different. And certainly that when it comes to the emotional valence of this, your perspective has a weight that mine doesn't have. A little bit tricky. I came upstairs from the basement when I heard this and just kind of announced it to my kids who were at home with my babysitter who was at home as well. And I mismanaged that announcement. Our babysitter is black and had not heard yet. And so I said, the conviction came out in Minneapolis and she basically stopped breathing and kind of hyperventilated until I said he was convicted. And I just immediately felt terrible because I watched what I care about deeply and feel implicated by as an American. And her experience waiting with that literally bated breath was totally different than my own experience. And she just needed like five minutes to go sit down and breathe. And to your point, Rivka, it's hard to know when talking to the kids whether this is, wow, this happened, it's a big deal, and there's some change on the horizon, or this happened and there isn't some change on the horizon. And it goes to the issues that I do want to unpack together with you about even narratives of redemption. How much do we want and need certain narratives of redemption? And when you get access to one, does it help or does it hurt actually doing the work? But before we get into that, let's go to a little bit of the bigger conversation about the post-George Floyd protests in America. I don't think the conviction marks an end of that. It marks a kind of moment in that story and the conversation that has opened that both of you have played significant roles on in the Jewish community, especially about the fabric of America and the ways in which white supremacy, it is argued, is woven into the fabric of that story. I'd love for you to both define our terms a little bit. How you see that story, if you want to make a historical argument, why you think the George Floyd murder was so significant in opening up that conversation, and what you think is at play right now for Americans in investigating the story. I'll start with you, Rivka. So to start with the question of why the George Floyd murder opened up this moment, I don't have particular insight into this. I can share with you some of the things I've read or heard. First of all, it's important to remember that there is a Black Lives Matter movement that had been growing and gaining steam in the United States over a number of years. It didn't start here. This was a culmination. And so there have been a series of protests in the United States after a series of killings of Black men at the hands of police. And also coming during a pandemic that particularly struck at minority and lower socioeconomic status communities in a variety of ways, not only the direct effects of the disease, but then certainly the economic effects as well. And also the presidency of Donald Trump, which I think framed everything that was going on when it came to talking about race in America in a certain way. And so people who've tried to analyze the different factors that contributed to this looked at all of those things happening together and said, maybe this is why. And of course, and again, none of that is to gainsay the importance of the video. Had there not been video in this case, it might have been there were other killings of Black people in America, even during the pandemic, during the Trump years, after the Black Lives Matter movement. But this video was so striking and the amount of time this wasn't engendering empathy. The cop had to make a split second decision. Was his life on the line? His life wasn't on the line. It wasn't a split second decision. If you were at any of the protests this summer in which kneeling on the pavement for the duration of the time that George Floyd was trapped under Derek Chauvin's knee was part of the protest this summer, you saw just how long that amount of time was. And so for all of those reasons coming together, this became a moment that other deaths didn't become. But I also think that there are other things that are building towards the broader reckoning or the broader conversation that you're talking about. And there was a very interesting one that I don't want to lose sight of here, which was the summer before that, the New York Times released the 1619 Project. And the 1619 Project was an exploration of the role of slavery 
the enslavement of black Africans who were transported to the British North American colonies and the role that that played in the development of the United States. The date 1619 is the first date that enslaved black people were brought to the British North American colonies. And the New York Times, led by journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, did this really significant research and writing project about it that was released in August of 2019. And that engendered a lot of talk, discussion, response not only in academic circles, although certainly there, but in more popular circles as well. The president of the United States felt compelled to respond to it. Donald Trump started something called the 1776 Project instead to respond with a different narrative of the founding of America. And so in a really interesting way, this question of what was this country founded on? What are the real roots? What are the true roots of our society? Became a broader national conversation in a way that I'm not sure that it had been in a very long time. And then these protests further contributed to having that conversation, really sort of discrediting, saying, oh, it's just a bad apple, oh, it's just a lone actor. And I think that the fact that the broader systemic analysis of the 1619 Project made it into the national conversation and the broader cultural conversation contributed to that also. That has to incorporate, we didn't quite get into the term yet, which I want to, and maybe Gina, you could help us get into this term, which is specifically the notion of white supremacy, not merely the enslavement of black Africans as inherent or endemic to the American project, but this particular construct, this notion that it is not merely a historical grievance that is being litigated, but a much more ideological, deeply held belief system that's actually driving the American project. So Gina, maybe you could unpack some of that term. I know you did some of this work before when you were at Bend the Arc. There's a larger theory and belief system that's motivated here. Sure. And I think of three particular terms in this moment that I'm using a lot and that I think apply quite concretely to the moment that we're in. One is this notion of white supremacy, which is the idea that white supremacy is a system, if you will. It is a larger ideology that encompasses a system of oppressions and institutions that have been designed to benefit and privilege white-skinned people, white-presenting people, at the expense of people of color. And white supremacy has been around for a long time. It predates the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in the United States, or pre-United States, if you will. And it's actually been exported worldwide for several hundreds of years. And so we have this larger system that has not just really been woven into the fabric, but is also foundational. It's been also what's been built upon and built with at the same time. I think that's really important to remember. There's white supremacy. And then I think a lot about the notion of white privilege, which is connected to white supremacy in the United States in this moment. And white privilege is, I think a lot about the phrase, an invisible package of unearned assets that white people, people who look white, get to access just by virtue of that whiteness, that white presentingness. And then I think importantly, there's a political term as well that's really ripe in this moment in the United States, which is white nationalism. And anti-Semitism and white supremacy form the foundation of white nationalism. And white nationalism is actually a political movement that wants to see all non-white people essentially not here. And all white ethnostate is the goal of white nationalism. So people who look like me, and in fact, people who don't look like me, but are Jewish and white presenting are all part of that group of folks that would be better off 
not being in the United States. So I think of white nationalism, white supremacy, and white privilege as three sort of interlocking terms that really are playing a major role in our political and social climate right now. Great. Now help me, and it's going to be a little bit of a facile question, but help me at least unpack the difference between when we use those terms in reference to what we perceive as facts or to the extent to which they operate as kind of theories or belief systems, which is to say, I know that there's a fact of white supremacy in the presence of people who are willing to call themselves white supremacists, right? The fact that they'll use that terminology about themselves very proudly, same with white ethno-nationalists. Okay, that's a data point of certain people who claim that terminology for themselves. But that's a very different claim than when we say America, for instance, is founded on white supremacy, which to some may feel so obviously true that it moves from being a moral opinion to a moral fact, but is quite self-evidently not an opinion that is shared by all Americans. In fact, Rifka, some of your examples you gave before, the 1619 Project invites a counter-response by people who recognize this is not a fact conversation, it's an opinion conversation, but it is so weighty that if we all agreed with it, it would require moral transformation. I'm curious how both of you think about that question of what about this is fact and what about it is opinion as relates to the ways in which this can or can't actually change our society? The parallel conversation to that around white supremacy is about the notion of racist or racism. Folks who are like, I can't be racist. I would hire whomever walked in the door for this role. Or I can't be racist. My nephew married a black woman or what have you. And so it's like, okay, there is a separation of the individual and the system. But the challenge is that even the individuals live within the system. And we can't take ourselves out of a system just because we feel like we aren't complicit with it, or we don't agree with it, or we don't exemplify those elements of racism or white supremacy in our everyday interactions with Black people or other people of color. I think it's important to recognize that the system does what the system does without individual activity. So for example, Rifka and I walk into a bank, Rifka is more than likely going to get a better interest rate on her loan by the virtue of the fact that she has white skin and she presents as a white person. And I do not. I have dark skin and present as a black person. So that is the system at work. And that's what we mean when we say we actually have to dismantle the system because our individual actions won't matter as much if we don't get all of the other myriad ways that Black people, people of color's lives are impacted by the world in which we live. And it's not just mortgage loans, it's housing, it's education, it's environment. There are so many ways where when we talk about that foundation and that systemic racism, that's what we mean. Rufko, what about you? How do you unpack the difference between these two categories? And I'm especially curious because you referenced 1619, the ways in which the conflation of belief about the problem versus fact of the problem invites the hostility towards this very conversation. Absolutely. And I'm now going to say something which refers back to a longstanding difference of opinion that Gina and I have had about this, because we approach this work from somewhat different places and engage in it in somewhat different ways. You asked sort of the fact of white supremacy and the ideology with all the valence of white supremacy. Gina talked about white supremacy and white privilege. I think that all of these terms have become so freighted with ideological valence that it's not worth the time and effort to try to say, no, no, I don't mean this belief system that you think isn't true or real or don't subscribe to. Let's discuss the historical facts that we can all acknowledge. 
I just want to park the words off on the side someplace. And let's just talk about the historical words we can all acknowledge. It was actually quite a few years ago in a conversation with Dr. Alana Steinhain at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America that I came to recognize that the term white privilege operated that way, that when I use the term, it just turns off a whole bunch of people right away. And if I describe what I mean by the term, a lot of people who otherwise might have been turned off by the term will say, oh, yeah, I get it. And actually, I acknowledge that's a real thing that happens in my life. And so I park the term. Now, you might say that's coddling the sensitivities of white Jews or Jews who look white or Jews who are white enough, whatever term we want to use. Absolutely, I am, because I have educational or pedagogical goals here. And to do things that are going to get in the way of those goals, I'd rather not do that. And I am sacrificing the between the eyes blunt force power of the term white supremacy. I am. And to the extent that somebody criticizes me for soft peddling the message, guilty as charged in the interest of getting more people to hear more of it, because it has been my experience. And that is why, although I referenced the 1619 Project as something that I think contributed to the national conversation last summer, I would be thoughtful about how I used it in a classroom setting. So that, for example, I gave my students in a citizenship class that I was teaching, Nicole Hannah-Jones' introductory essay about her father's patriotism. Her father, as the army-serving American patriot who would replace the American flag flying in front of the house whenever it got ragged because of his love for and commitment to a country that didn't always reciprocate that love, with an essay from John McCain about what it meant to be an American citizen, and gave both of those essays to my students to read side by side and to think about and engage with. I do find that when I give students factual historical information, when I teach students about the Tulsa Race Massacre, when I teach students about convict leasing, when I teach students about the mass carnival spectacle of lynchings, when I teach students about, and we can really go on, and it is about redlining, and it is about neighborhoods. I had the experience recently that I said something about the evidence that poor minority neighborhoods are actually hotter, physically hotter. The temperature is higher because there is less green space, fewer Fewer trees, trees, less shade. They are hotter and therefore more dangerous neighborhoods. And a colleague of mine said, that sounds like some crazy conspiracy theory. And so, of course, I shared with him the citation for it. That's true. And you're like, how could that possibly? That's true. And so I would much rather invest my energy in teaching people the historical information that once you learn it, rearranges your mental furniture. Even if I sort of shave off a little bit, of the rhetorical force by not using the terms white privilege or white supremacy. And Gina, what do you make of that? How do you see the cost-benefit analysis as Rivka's playing it out? I both agree and disagree. I mean, I'm in the process right now of doing some investigation into Jews and white supremacy and white privilege and some of these terms because I feel like there is an element of what's the word that we use? What are the terms that we use? We don't always have the time to go through the teaching. Rivka's got classes. She's got a platform. She's got people and children and adults that she learns with. And sometimes to move progress, we don't have that the luxury of that time and that relationship. And so to me, it is important to have terms that people can identify with and that people can find resonant and that can help us shape and put contours around some of the stories that we tell. So I both um, totally get Rivka's position and want to find the language and the terms that we can actually use to encapsulate these concepts because they're applicable and they're real. I'm kind of enchanted by this almost semantic conversation because it goes to a larger question of how do you actually achieve change? The people who become convinced that you're right, 
who, using the terminology, awaken to an idea that America is not what it says it was, who believe that America is laced or run through with white supremacy as a founding ideology, those folks are going to be deeply enlisted to the project. Maybe not always in the way you want them to be, but they're enlisted. And I also don't know what's stronger, having like a set of people who really are true believers now in a different story, but in turn, you've invited people who recognize that dismantling their story is going to be really costly <laughs> and therefore are mobilized even more powerfully against you or Rifka's strategy, right? Which I guess I'm dispositionally more close to, which is I want to get as many people involved understanding this problem and therefore enlisted to it, even though I have to kind of soft pedal the terminology in the process. And I don't know what the right answer is. I think from my perspective within the movement, I do want to bring more people to the table, but I actually have a different theory of change in terms of how that happens. Like, I think it all happens when we build a bigger we and that I'm not only talking to the Jewish community, I'm talking to everybody who's marginalized and Jews belong in that category. And so if I can have a conversation with both the Jews that I can bring in, maybe who aren't center right, but a little bit more aligned and I can mm -hmm. deepen their intensity, then to me, that's a winning coalition. Great. Let's stay with Jews for a second if we can, just because, you know, occupational hazard. Some of the voices, and I don't need to name names, who are most resistant to the terminology of white supremacy as part of the American project, who are most resistant to the language of systemic or systematic racism. That's another pair of words that mean something different, but get used interchangeably. Some of the folks who are mobilized against this are themselves Jewish. And I guess the thing that I'm still trying to wrap my head around also, which I find confusing, is that some of the same folks would agree with you if you made the claim about the fundamental anti-Semitism of the West. In other words, they're not uncomfortable with the idea that anti-Semitism is hardwired <laughs> against Jews, but they are resistant to the idea that racism is hardwired into the American project. Right. So classically, in Jewish terms, this was the Midrashic line, Esav hates Jacob, that to believe that the hatred that they have towards us goes all the way back to the beginning. And therefore, it's almost like anti-Semites are almost powerless to resist their hatred of the Jew. The Jew is ontologically separate, ontologically other. So I'm trying to make sense of what it means that someone would believe that that anti-Semitism can be kind of baked in, but has a hard time wrestling with the ways in which racism and white supremacy might be baked into the American project. So Rifka, I don't need you to give like a sociological analysis of how this is the case, but I'm curious what you've thought about why for some people it's really easy to understand the structural nature of anti-Semitism, but it's really hard for them to wrestle with the structural nature of racism. I think it's because that story goes so against our own experience as an American Jewish community, where our ancestors mostly came here as immigrants somewhere between 1880 and today. And then we went through this grand communal making it narrative from the Shmata store or the push card or the whatever it was to sending their kid to public college. We all know the arc of that story. And it's very true for our community. And it is so true for so many in our community that it's a little bit hard to imagine how not true it is for another community. And so it leads people to say, well, if we were able to do this bootstrapping thing, but for real, this American dream thing, but for real, if they weren't, then presumably it's because they weren't working hard enough or they weren't trying hard enough or they were lazy or all the other things that people say. And that's why I think that so much of the work, I go back by my one drum that I keep banging, I think that so much of the work is actually teaching people American history. 
I think when you realize how different the black American experience is and how much of a difference it made without denying the reality of the anti-Semitism that existed in the United States and exists in the United States, how much of a difference it made that American Jews were able to become white. Again, the overwhelming majority of American Jews who are of light skin color were able to become white in the sense that various white ethnics were once not grouped as white and then became white. The Irish became white, the Italians became white, the Jews became white. And that made an enormous difference for our story. And I think that there is therefore a tendency to universalize that. If we could do that, other people can do it. And if they didn't do it, there must be some reason why that's some fault of theirs. And I think helping explain why it is that that just was not the case, those opportunities were not available to the Black American community, can help American Jews realize that our truth is not a universal truth. What about you, Gina? I know your experience, in contrast to what Rivka describes as being the dominant story of the American Jewish community, your experience is not that. Yours is intersectional by nature. It's not your Jewish story, and it's not your American story. But you, I'm sure, encounter resistance to this story all the time as it relates to the juxtaposition between anti-Semitism and structural racism. Absolutely. And even if it's not my story or the story of other Jews of color or folks who just don't have that immigrant experience in their lineage it is still the dominant story for most American Jews. Like we are still, even as we are not entirely white or entirely Ashkenazi, we still are mostly white and mostly Ashkenazi. It's really important to recognize that proportionally, this is the story of a large part of our community. And so that is just true. And it is not the complete story of our entire community. But I do think that that is part of the reason why. And I think that there is a recency in terms of the ways that anti-Semitism has shown up differently in the United States than it has historically worldwide. And so even though there has been anti-Semitism and it has always been present, it functions differently over time. And we are living in a different era of anti-Semitism than we lived in the Middle Ages. And so I think it's just really important to recognize that there is that truth too. In a media landscape flooded with hot takes, we need an island of well-written, long-form essays. A place where deep thinkers articulate their ideas and others respond and challenge those ideas with passion and respect. The Shalom Hartman Institute is proud to announce a new quarterly journal of Jewish ideas called Sources. Significant ideas, beautifully expressed, crafted for Jewish thinkers like you. The inaugural issue features essays on the future of Jewish pluralism, whether Jewish continuity is fundamentally sexist, and a theologian's take on life during a pandemic. You can order a print subscription or read these essays online right now at sourcesjournal.org. Let's take one piece of the American construct and the American system and go into a little detail if we can. It's a sensitive one, and it's the criminal justice system. And criminal justice system, and going back to the prompt of our show today, it's hard to say that the criminal justice system worked in this incident because it was a police officer killed an unarmed black man in full view of everybody else. That's part of the criminal justice system, too. And so the fact that the criminal justice system punishes that person for that crime is a corrective of a problem created by the criminal justice system. But the organized Jewish community has this complicated relationship to the criminal justice system. In my own community in Riverdale, this won't be new to anybody by the time this show airs, but it might be new to both of you. I don't know if you've heard this yet, but there was an incident last night where four synagogues in Riverdale were vandalized with rocks thrown at them. No idea who perpetrated it, but I was very taken by the fact that in the email I got from my rabbi, it said, 
Police responded, and don't worry, police are on the scene. So the organized Jewish community has a relationship with policing, for the most part, where its institutions are dependent on close relationships with the criminal justice system, and especially with police, kind of assumes that police is there to protect us against the structural anti-Semitism. Of course, Black Americans have a far more ambivalent relationship with the criminal justice system. I'd love to unpack a little bit this is kind of one of those meeting points between thinking that the system is there to help you and protect you versus thinking that the system is there actually to persecute you. How do either of you relate towards the Jewish community's relationship to criminal justice? I know there's a lot of talk, especially led by Jews of color in America over the last couple of years of rethinking the Jewish community's relationship with the criminal justice system. It seems unlikely to me that synagogues, that Hillel's are going to really say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't have such a close relationship with campus police. Leave aside policy for a second. Let's stay with the question of belief systems and this notion that if white supremacy is baked into the system, how do we kind of even approach the conversation of what it looks like to wrestle with that tension of the relationship between our community and these institutions? That's such a good question, because I think about what policing originally was meant to do. We think of its origin in slave catching patrols and protecting property of white people, essentially. And it has morphed into the system that we see today. And I think the very fact that our largely white Jewish community is in this relationship with police, <laughs> in this protective relationship, is indicative of the very privileges of our largely whiteness that we get to access. And so I think it's important to just note that, that policing is meant to protect white people and their property in this country historically. And also, Jewish institutions need protection. We aren't at a point yet where I think that Hillel's and JCC's and federations can just say no. I mean, realistically, would I love to see them figure out ways to cut ties? Absolutely. I think we're a long way from that. What that could mean, though, if we did do it at the community level, is talking more to others in our community. What's our relationship with other Black folks? What's our relationship to Muslim communities? What's our relationship to other faith communities that we can figure out a way to make us all safer? Because actually right now, many of us are under threat and under attack. And so I think it's really important to think about what relationship building might mean at the local level. On the other hand, I also know that in the Jewish community, there is activism on the progressive side that is leading some of this work and actually being part of the Jewish voice in terms of how do we fix policing? How do we fix community safety, really? How do we move from thinking about our protection in punitive and carceral ways and thinking about our protection in terms of solidarity and safety? So I think that there is a movement to front to help us think differently, even at the local level, community-based, about how we're safe and I understand sort of a mainstream legacy response that's going to make that challenging. And I understand why that relationship around policing and protection exists in our community. Rivka, I want to ask you a similar question, but using a historical frame for a historian. In one of our Hartman seminars this week, we talked a little bit about the Leo Frank case in Atlanta. This very weird story of, in some ways, a Jew performing blackness in America, in that Frank gets convicted of a crime he doesn't commit, which is an act of violence against a young white woman, and ultimately gets convicted by the system. A lynch mob 
actually led by people in law enforcement, breaks into the prison, takes out Frank and lynches him. But the piece I want to focus on is that one of the things that emerges for the American Jewish community at the time was the creation of the Anti-Defamation League. It's like one of the prompting moments for the creation of the ADL. In other words, part of the American Jewish establishment gets created in response to a belief that the criminal justice system doesn't protect us. We need our own system of protection. Fast forward 100 years later, go back to the question that I asked Gina at the beginning, American Jewish community overwhelmingly is on the side of law enforcement and criminal justice. So using a historical lens, we don't have to do like what changed, but what do you think should change between the 1900s skepticism of criminal justice, which is in some ways akin to the black community's skepticism, to where we are now, which is a sense by many American Jews were basically on the side of the criminal justice system. Well, I think that what happens between then and now is that Jews became white. And again, to issue our usual disclaimer, and by that, I obviously mean Jews of European background, which is most Jews in the United States, where those Jews of Eastern European origin in the 19-teens would have been regarded as racially distinct and not white. They were of the Semitic race, the Hebrew race. They were described differently. They were racially classified differently. And for a variety of reasons that historians have traced, Today, white passing Jews are really pretty white in the sense of enjoying all the advantages of inhabiting that status in society. And I'll just go back to the thing I go back to, which is I'm not particularly trying to change the Jewish community's relationship to law enforcement. And again, others might be. I'm not. There is a sense of vulnerability. There is a sense of feeling protected. What I am trying to do is to get my students to understand that that is not all communities and not all people's relationship to law enforcement. I mean, this happened in my high school. I'm an administrator in SAR High School, and both of my interlocutors here are parents in SAR High School. Last year, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, we did a couple of programs in the school to talk about racial justice in the school. And I asked an African-American teacher in the school if he would be willing to speak to the school community about his experiences just living life in New York City as a black man. There was a lot about that that was fascinating. The first thing that was fascinating was that he at first said no. He said it was something he was not comfortably doing. And then he called me back a little while later and he said, I'm still not comfortable doing it, but I feel like I have to. And he spoke about it to me in a way that was personal and so moving that I was close to tears. He spoke about it in terms of his young son who was growing into his body as a black man in New York City and feeling like this needs to change. And then he talked to the SAR community about being racially profiled by the police officer that we hired to stand outside the school so that we feel safe from potential anti-Semitic attack. So we feel safe because there's somebody wearing an NYPD uniform and carrying a gun in front of the school every day because we feel like if somebody who wishes us ill because we are obviously identifiably Jewish comes to the school, this police officer will stop them. And a black man who's a member of our faculty is routinely being stopped and asked by those officers outside the school what he's Mm -hmm. doing here because they assume he doesn't belong. And a student in the school submitted a question in the chat box. She said, did you ask Mr. Anson to speak because you knew these stories of his? Or did you just ask him to speak because you assumed that any black man in New York City, any black man in America would have these stories? And I said, no, I asked him to speak because I assumed that any black man in America, any black man in New York City would have these stories. My students are still going to feel safer when there's an armed cop in front of the school. And as you mentioned with the incident that just happened in Riverdale, there is reason for my students to feel that way. And my students also need to understand why not everyone and even not everyone who's a member of our school community feels the same way. Let me ask you one last question. And again, I want to resist redemptive narratives. 
we have times in our liturgical year when we need or we want to tell redemptive stories. I don't think that has to be all the time, and it certainly doesn't have to be in relationship to the news cycle. But both of you have been at Hartman this year as part of a research and study group thinking about the ways in which Jewish ideas and Jewish values can respond to the American racial moment to constructs of white supremacy. I'm very proud that you're both at the Institute doing this work. And I know our lane as an institute is less in the work of building political activism and more in the realm of ideas. I think that those ideas also can change the world. I'd love for you to just share each briefly one thing that you're thinking about, maybe writing or an idea that you've been studying over the course of this year that might help our listeners build their own curriculum for continuing to learn on how do we stay at this intersection, this very uncomfortable intersection, not only for all Americans, certainly for Black Americans, but for Jews as well, about what it means to be Jewish and what it means to confront this racial justice moment. So there are loads of Jewish sources, rabbinic sources, sources in Tanakh itself. There are loads of Jewish sources that attend to the importance, not just of being nice people, but of having just systems. Gina talked about this earlier when she said people saying, you know, I'm not racist, I would hire anyone who comes through the door. And that's not just the question. The question is, how do your systems work? And there are loads of Jewish sources that we can draw upon and refer to, to talk to us about the importance of just systems, whether it's the fact that one of the seven Noahide commandments, one of the commandments that according to the Torah, all people on earth, not just all Jews, but all human beings are commanded is to establish a system of laws, to establish a system of justice to govern a society, whether it's the various later prophets who are exhorting the Jews as they approach the destruction of the temple and talking to them about the ways in which they're not doing what God wants. And so often those rebukes are about having unjust and exploitative societies. Not you're not a nice person personally, but your society is structured in a way that it takes advantage of people. So I would say that thinking about this, about systems and structures, not just about nice and not nice, has really, really, really deep roots in the Jewish tradition, in Jewish sources, and in Jewish texts. And if we want to start talking about that and to say that nice is great, all in favor of nice, I've got nothing against being nice, but that nice is not enough, that we have to think about systems and structures and whether our systems and structures are just or unjust, whether our legal systems are just or unjust, whether societies are just or unjust. We have to be thinking at that level, not just at the nice individual's level. There's enormous amount in Jewish tradition and Torah tradition for us to draw upon to do so. Gina, how about you? 100% agree with what Rivka just said. And I also want to think about who we are as a Jewish community and why it's not only important for us to think about the systems and structures that we participate in as members of the larger American society, but also the systems within our own communities and our own institutions. And so what does it look like for us to know that within our Jewish community are people who feel threatened by police and are people who have been marginalized or excluded from being welcoming or feeling like they belong? And are our own systems, our own organizations within our community, the types of places that do that? And then I want to think about the fact that as American Jews, because of what we've been able to do as a largely white community over these last few hundred years of the American experiment, it means that we have right now a conditional privilege and opportunity and agency and influence and power as this Jewish community to do exactly what Rifka was saying. We don't have to be limited only to our federation and our JCC and our day school, but how do we use this power to your point, 
Yehuda, about not getting to political activism, but I have to because you know who I am. Mm-hmm. How do we use this power and this agency to do that for the systems that we are a part of being Americans? And how do we do it internally for our systems that are our community too? You know, Gina, to that point, the fact that one organization knows its own lane doesn't mean that said organization, in this case ours, doesn't know that others inhabit other lanes and you can't actually change the world unless these things are in relationship to each other. It's why the sages know that they're not prophets and the prophets know that they're not sages, but it doesn't mean that they're invalidating their legitimacy. I'll just throw my own piece on this, which is we talked at the beginning about the role of video in the Chauvin conviction. And I couldn't help but think watching this, referencing the Leo Frank case before, so much of this history of violence against Black people in America has been performative in public. Lynchings were something that the lynchers took pride in, (laughs) that they were doing this, and how much this remains to convince people that something that's actually visible, that has been intentionally visible, is invisible, is one of the strangest pieces of the resistance against the understanding of racial justice in this country. I think there's a lot of Torah for us to think about around testimony and testimonial in moments like this. On one hand, the presence of these videos is so overwhelming that it's very traumatizing for many people. There's a lot of like, don't keep circulating these videos because it re-traumatizes us and it actually makes victims perform their victimhood in public over and over again. On the other hand, our tradition is very clear about the ways in which when you have clear evidence of a crime, justice can't be blind in the presence of that. So I think there's a lot of Torah for us to think about what it means to have had this story in public so often. And even when we don't have clear evidence of a crime, there's still steps that we must take to absolve the guilt of the crime. That's so interesting to me, Gina, because I actually think in this episode, when people say he's just a bad guy, and I don't mean Chauvin particularly, any one of these murderous police officers, it was just him and it was just him. And I think about that episode in the Torah of the calf with a broken neck when a dead body is found outside a city. Yes. We don't know who's responsible for the killing. And we measure the distance to the closest city. And then the rabbis and the leaders of that city have to break the neck of a calf while they declare we are not responsible for killing this person whose dead body was found outside our city. That's exactly what Gina was saying. Who thinks the rabbis went out of the city to murder somebody? Nobody thinks the rabbis went out of the city to murder somebody. The rabbis are saying, even if we didn't kill him, there is some level of guilt we have for presiding over a society in which this happened. And we have to figure out what we have to fix so that the society over which we preside is not one in which this can happen. And these are not some woke, lefty, critical race theory 2021 <laughs> things I made up. This is in the Tanakh. It's in the Chumash. Exactly. I promise you it's there. That's, right. That's exactly where I was going. I yeah, heard I it. I heard it. Yeah. The sense that even if we didn't do the killing, if we are part of a society in which this kind of killing happens with some level of routine, there is a level of self-scrutiny of cheshbon hanefesh, of moral accounting that demands that we do something. And sometimes we get so locked into political silos that we don't see that it's completely obvious that this is what the Torah is telling us. Right. And the real risk in some ways, it goes back to where we started. And with this, we conclude the real risk is when you actually have a perpetrator, it sometimes exonerates everybody else from thinking that the perpetration is our collective responsibility. And the example that you're citing is when you don't know who the perpetrator is, so we take responsibility collectively. But the message of that text is you take responsibility for a dead body in your midst. And whether or not there's actually a named perpetrator, it doesn't absolve you of that responsibility. I will just say that great Rosh Hashiva of Aaron Luchtenstein of Yeshivat Haaretzion cited this yep. set of biblical verses, this biblical story, in an address he gave to the Yeshiva after the murder of Yitzhak Rabin. When there was a named mm. perpetrator, but he also said our religious Zionist society 
collectively has to do some kind of accounting for how we were the soil out of which this murderer grew. And so there is, don't take it from me, Ravar and Lichtenstein thought the same thing, that you could have a named murderer and you could still have a society that says, what accounting do we have to make for what was able to grow from within our society? Well, thank you all for listening to our show this week. And special thanks to our guests, Gina Green and Rivka Press-Schwartz. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by Devin C. Kalman and edited by Alex Dillon with assistance from Miri Miller and music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, you can visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people find it. And you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and thank you for listening. 